Welcome back to The Emily Show. I can't believe it's 2024. A lot of you have been asking whether or not Tom Girardi is faking, and a federal judge in California has answered that question. Yes, he is. Now, I'm not saying the judge said lying liar that lies. What the judge said was malingering, and we're going to be getting into that finding of competency and the ruling that's been recently unsealed today. I'm also going to break down very quickly at the beginning of the episode, the Tom and Ariana lawsuit over the house that is dropping before the premiere of Vanderpump Rules. So we're going to talk about those two things today. But you want to know something that's real? What's real is how much I love Green Chef. Because not only will it satisfy your hunger and you'll feel great in every bite, but Green Chef is real wholesome food that supports a healthy lifestyle. You can get 60% off Green Chef plus 20% off your next two months with code 60EmilyBaker at greenchef.com slash 60EmilyBaker. So get yourself some real good food and let's get into the real tea of today's episode. Because sometimes reality bites. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm Emily D. Baker, the internet's go-to legal analyst and big fan of the cursey words. I've been a licensed attorney for over 17 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I break down the legal side of pop culture and entertainment stories we can't stop talking about. We should just get into it. Let's go. The first thing we are taking a look at today is one of the first legal filings of 2024. And yes, I waited for this filing to hit the court docket instead of reporting on it from TMZ's reporting of it. Why? I always want to see the documents for myself. If you watched Vanderpump Rules at all, or if you have heard me talk about it ad nauseum, it's because there are still shining lights of reality TV that I can't turn away from, and Vanderpump Rules is one of them. So, Ariana and Tom are cohabitating in a mutual home that they bought together. Based on statements made on the show, it seems to me that they bought the house 50-50 ownership. They are not married. They were cohabitating. They have since broken up due to Tom's affair with another cast member and close friend of Ariana. But the scandal of it all is something you probably couldn't get away from last year and are getting ready to watch play out when Vanderpump Rules premieres later this month. So so with all of that, of course, there is a new lawsuit. And this is a lawsuit where Ariana is suing Tom Sandoval and City National Bank. What is she suing for? To partition the house, meaning sell it and let's get out. It would seem to me, and this is this is lawyer-educated speculation. This is my legal-educated guess. It seems to me that Tom is not willing to let Ariana buy him out of the house. Ariana is not going to um, let Tom buy her out of the house, or he can't. And they have come to a stalemate with what to do with the house. They were both still living in the house while the scandal was breaking down. But Ariana has been on Dancing with the Stars, and she's performing on Broadway, and she's like in Chicago. I don't know. Would you be concerned if she's starring in Chicago, Tom, that she's like, she walks in the door and she's like, he had it coming. He had it coming. You know, I don't know. Are you concerned? Maybe, maybe not. I'm teasing, sort of. But they were cohabitating in this house and had bought it 50-50. So what do you do when you break up your relationship, but there's no divorce proceeding that you're going through in court because there's no divorce because there's not 
a traditional legal marriage. Well, that's what this lawsuit is. This lawsuit is for essentially equitable division of the assets. They are trying to resolve this property in court because they cannot resolve it outside of court. And here's part of the problem is that based on what has been said on the show, and again, this is things said on a reality show. These are not things said under oath, though I have no reason to believe it's otherwise. Based on things said on the show, it seems that Tom Sandoval borrowed against the house to open his Tom Tom Schwartz and Sandy's restaurant with Tom Schwartz on the show um, that took them forever to open. So if he took more equity out of this house than the 50-50, this might not just be an easy, we sell the house, you take your part, I take my part. There might be more to it if Sandoval took out a loan against the equity in the house. So this could be a complex situation, and it seems that the two of them have not been able to resolve it. So that's where court comes in. So Ariana filed in court in Burbank. I actually know this courthouse. I law clerked for a judge in this courthouse. I never worked in this courthouse as a DA. Oh my God. I could think of nothing worse just because the drive from the South Bay would have been so miserable. All right. So filed in LA County, January 5th, 2024, Ariana Maddox versus Tom Sandoval. So you can see that this was filed in LA. January 5th, 2024, Ariana Maddox versus Tom Sandoval. The parties are plaintiff Ariana Maddox residing in Los Angeles, defendant Thomas Sandoval residing in Los Angeles, defendant City National Bank is a national bank that's named herein as a nominal defendant that is a beneficiary of two deeds of trust encumbering the property. So there are two deeds on the property. Do we find out much more about that? No, we do not. First cause of action, partition against all defendants. For the Legally Blonde fans, just equitable division of the assets. This is essentially what they're asking for. As joint tenants in the property, plaintiff is entitled to partition of the property. Joint tenants means both own the property. Partitioning the property just means splitting it or dividing it. Discord exists among the owners of the property. Yes. (laughs) True. I, yes. (laughs) All. Yes, all. Discord exists among the owners of the property, which has had and is continuing to have a negative effect on the ownership of the property and on plaintiff's enjoyment of her interest in the property. Plaintiff cannot use the property because Tom is at the property, right? So because Discord exists and they have not been able to resolve this, I imagine this case will just go into mediation. Plaintiff requests that the property be partitioned by sale. That means that the court will force a sale. They will each take their portions away. What we saw at the end of Vanderpump Rules last season was that Ariana was like, we can talk through the lawyers. We can talk through the lawyers. Like, do not talk to me. So even though they were living in the same house, they were not communicating with one another uh, face-to-face. So plaintiff requests that the property be partitioned by sale. Partition by sale of the property is more equitable than division in kind. Division in kind meaning letting one side or the other sell their part. Kind of like, kind of like the winery with Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, right? The problem in the Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt, Miraval winery situation is that they both own part of the winery. And then Angelina Jolie sold her interest to a third party 
and Brad Pitt does not want to work with that third party, but now they're owners of the property together. Can you imagine if that was not a winery and a business and a massive estate in France, but a single family home in the Valley? What would that be like if Tom Sandoval sells his portion and his interest in the house and some somebody else just moves in with Ariana or vice versa? Like it is a single family home. So allowing Ariana to sell her interest in the home or Tom to sell his interest in the home doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, unless Schwartz is going to just move in with Sandoval. Ariana, just sell your part to Schwartz. Can Schwartz afford it? I don't know. I don't know. But sell your interest to Schwartz. And then Schwartz and Sandoval can just own this house 50-50. That might be the fastest way to deal with it. I don't know if that's going to happen. That's absolutely not going to happen. It's the beginning of the year. We just have to have some cheekiness before we get into wildness with, with Girardi. So, her lawyers have said that partition by sale of the property is more equitable than division in kind of the property because, among other things, A, the nature of the property, a single-family residence, renders a division in kind impractical. Like, you can't just split it down the middle and sell it like you could partition off acres or a winery or whatever. B, the division in kind would substantially diminish the value of each owner's interest in the property. Yes, because then you can never sell a whole house. You're fighting to sell 50% of a house, and that has anybody ever wanted to buy 50% of a house when you weren't dealing with, like, transferring deed of family properties? No. C, title issues would render a division in kind virtually impossible. And D, a division in kind cannot legally be accomplished under the facts and circumstances present in this action. So they're saying there's no way to just let one party sell their ownership of the house. And this is this is part of the problem with trying to equitably own property together is that it can get very difficult to divide that property if things go badly, which is why prenuptial agreements are so helpful. But if you don't want to get married, what do you do? Unless one person owns the home in their name and the other person pays rent, owning it 50-50 can cause these kinds of problems when trying to then unown it. The end of it just says, Ariana prays for judgment, a partition by sale of the property. For an equitable allocation of the proceeds of the sale of the property, including the payment of debt secured by same and cost of partitioning, including but not limited to attorney's fees, title expenses, and the cost be secured by a lien against the sale of the property and further relief. This really is a fine. We can't resolve it on our own, but we can't live in this house together forever. We have to just sell the house. We have to just sell the house. So. With all of that, we will see what happens. My guess would be that this goes into mediation and they determine a list price and the lawyers mediate it and sell it and equitably divide the assets. And we're not going to see that play out on this season of Vanderpump Rules that's already in the can and it's airing at the end of this month. But we will see this, I'm sure, play out across social media. And hopefully both parties will be able to just move on and move away from this house and and be done with it. And hopefully this will be kind of the final chapter closing for them so they can move on. We'll see if everybody continues on the show beyond this season. But who knows? Reali reality TV has these moments that capture the interest of the nation. Scandaball was definitely one of them. With all of that, we have to get into the Girardi fraud of it all. Well, I'm not a big new year, new you type of a girly. But if you're looking to smell better in the new year, I've got you covered with Lumi. 
So you can have your best year ever because Lumi's whole body deodorant will have you smelling amazing. And doesn't that just make you feel good? But Lumi's also different than your normal deodorant. It's safe to use on the whole body. And it was created by an OBGYN. So you know that you can use it in all of the parts you might be concerned about. It's pH balanced. So you know that those parts will be kept safe, even if you're using it below the belt. So if you're ready to try it out, the Lumi Starter Pack is an absolute must. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, and you can pick the deodorant wipes or the body wash. And it has free shipping. And for Emily Show listeners, you get $5 off your starter pack. So make sure you use code LAWNERD to get a total of 40% off when you get the starter pack. That includes your extra $5 off for using code LAWNERD at lumideodorant.com with code LAWNERD. All right, let's get back to today's episode. You you think they're sweating? I, th- I think Girardi's sweating a little bit. Probably doesn't have Lumi, though. A quick recap on where we're at with Tom Girardi right now. There is no such thing as a quick road so far with this case that's been going on since 2020, but I'm going to do the best that I can do to give a quick recap of where we're at in this case. This is the order that has finally been unsealed on the competency hearing. Tom Girardi has been indicted in California and Illinois on multiple counts that are centered around stealing money from clients. Different clients in Illinois, that's the Boeing air crash, versus the clients in California, which is a other group of victims of Tom Girardi. But it is all centered around the theft of money from clients. Tom is being prosecuted in California with his former CFO. Remember, the former CFO had a side fraud where he just is accused of stealing a cute like $10 million from the Girardi Keys law firm, while Tom Girardi is accused of stealing hundreds of millions from his clients. Yeah, that's all being prosecuted in California. The co-defendant got picked up when coming back to the United States uh, from the Bahamas and has been in custody since. Tom Girardi, quickly after the bankruptcy happened in 2020, went into a conservatorship with his brother overseeing it. And at that time, there were a lot of questions that if he is ever going to be prosecuted, how will this conservatorship play into any future prosecution? How does the conservatorship impact the bankruptcy? With the bankruptcy, zero, 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 none. The bankruptcy just happens with the bankruptcy trustees. Tom Girardi doesn't need to participate at all, and it's been going along without his participation. They asked the CFO, Cayman, who is also um, indicted with Girardi, to participate in the bankruptcy. He pled the fifth rapidly. And that's before we knew about the side fraud. We just knew about all the other sketchy shit that was going on. So as this case has continued to unravel since 2020, we're now in 2024, and we're seeing a move forward on the California indictment. And this is also going to be very helpful for the Illinois indictment. Do you remember when I read Judge Durkin's order, the vitriol that came through the writing of how outraged, how appalled, how offended Judge Durkin was at Girardi's behavior. Because in that court, it has been proven that the money for the Lion Air clients was taken by Tom Girardi. No, the criminal proceeding hasn't gone down yet, but the money was gone. And that has been proven through contempt hearings and other 
other methods, the money is gone. So Judge Durkin did not hold back in saying this needs to be forwarded for criminal prosecution. This behavior is absolutely criminal. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how this plays out between the competency hearing here in California and whether or not there will be competency proceedings in Illinois or whether the Illinois defense attorneys won't even try it because of this judge's ruling. So we need to look at not just the ruling that Tom Girardi is competent, but what the judge has to say about Tom Girardi's competency. Again, he's in his 80s. Can there be some mental um, shifts or mental declines Yes, there can be. Does that mean you're not competent to be held criminally responsible? No, it does not. And I know that this judge is going to get into it, but um, but she also says he's faking. So there's that. Let's get into this judge's ruling. I forgot to swoop when I did my rulings earlier. All right, so unsealed by order of the court, January 5th, 2024. The... Order finding defendant competent to stand trial. What does this mean? We're going to look at all the tea the judge has to say. But what this means is Tom Girardi can go to trial, and I imagine they're going to be trying to do that quickly. The court says this matter is before the court on the defendant's motion for an order finding incompetency. The, def the defense said, excuse me, Your Honor, our defendant cannot stand trial. Can't do it. Just can't do it. And the prosecution said, uh, no, that's not what we're doing. The record on this matter is extensive and includes a three-day evidentiary hearing, the transcript of which has been filed on the docket. Expert reports from doctors Wood, Choi, Darby, Schroeder, and Goldstein, unredacted version, footnote two, pre-hearing and post-hearing briefing and extensive exhibits. They had set this for a day, one-day hearing. Then they extended it to a three-day hearing. And then they asked the attorneys to do post-hearing briefing. So even after all the hearing, even after Tom Girardi cursed at the prosecutors during this hearing, even then, they still asked for post-hearing briefing. So the court has taken in quite a lot of argument from the lawyers and from um, the hearing and from the briefing. Having reviewed and considered the entire record, and for the reasons set forth herein, the court finds defendant is competent to stand trial and denies defendant's motion. Introduction. Current charges. Emily, when will you learn to not give your own road so far and just let the federal judge do it? When? Never. Emily, keep reading. On January 31st, 2023, former attorney, disgraced attorney, your honor, your honor, your honor, disgraced, disgraced attorney, Former attorney Thomas Vincent Girardi was indicted on five counts of wire fraud in violation of 18 U.S.C. 1343. Defendant is accused of defrauding five clients, quote, by means of material false and fraudulent pretense, representations and promises, and the concealment of material facts, and defendant had a duty to disclose. Essentially, the alleged scheme to defraud is that defendant and his co-defendant unlawfully failed to pay their client victims certain settlement funds received by defendant's now-defunct law firm Girardi Keese, and that they made misrepresentations and or offered fictitious excuses as to why the settlement funds could not be distributed to the client victim sooner. In addition to the five criminal charges, the indictment seeks an order of forfeiture in an unspecified amount traceable to the charged offenses. Good luck with the forfeiture. 
uh, the bankruptcy court is trying to find all that money. Procedural history on February 6th, defendant was arraigned, entered a plea of not guilty, and was released on bond. Shortly thereafter, on March 13th, defense counsel sought an order for a mental competency evaluation of defendant. The order was granted. August 17th, 2023, defendant filed the present motion seeking an order finding him incompetent to stand trial due to limited cognitive functioning as the result of dementia. The matter was briefed in advance of the first of three days of hearing on the matter. With the filing of the last post-hearing brief on November 30th, 2023, the matter was submitted, meaning submitted for the court to make a decision. Defendant's position. I like this judge's writing. Thank you, Your Honor. Defendant's position. Defendant through counsel moves the court for an order determining that he is incompetent to stand trial. Defendant argues that his cognitive decline became apparent in 2017 when a post-auto accident MRI revealed moderate brain volume loss and the presence of white matter lesions. He asserts that thereafter, in or around 2019 to 2020, multiple individuals noticed his continued decline and that by early 2021, three neurologists agreed that defendant was cognitively impaired due to Alzheimer's. Remember, remember, defendant was practicing law up until the absolute and staggering collapse of everything in 2020. Just saying. Three neurologists agreed that defendant was cognitively impaired due to Alzheimer's disease or dementia. He asserts that it was this cognitive decline that caused his brother to initiate conservatorship proceedings in probate court on January 19th, 2021, and that caused his family to later place him in assisted living. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Defendant asserts that he has drastically declined since then and cannot perform basic self-care. Defendant's expert, Dr. Wood, diagnosed defendant with major neurocognitive disorder not specified. Defendant argues he is unable to recall and or retain case-specific information and is therefore unable to assist counsel in his defense. Defense counsel believes that defendant is incompetent to stand trial. And the reason they have defendant being unable to assist is because, of course, that's one of the key components of competency, whether the defendant understands what's going on against him and whether he can assist his counsel. It is a low standard to meet, meaning it's very easy to be found competent and somewhat challenging to be found not competent to stand trial. Because we talked about this, if you watch my coverage of the business case, we talked about the fact that you can have impairment, you can have many of the DSM diagnoses and still be competent to be held criminally responsible. There are very limited things that render a person not able to be held criminally responsible and competency can shift over time. The court goes on to say the government's position. The government, which bears the burden of proof as to defendant's mental competency to stand trial, maintains that defendant is exaggerating mild cognitive de uh, defects in an attempt to thwart the present prosecution namely that he is effectively feigning or exaggerating symptoms suggestive of mental incompetency, which is termed, quote-unquote, malingering by experts in their reports. The government contends that defendant's feigning began when his decades-long scheme of defrauding his clients began to unravel as the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic drastically slowed the incoming cash flow to Girardi Keys. I've been arguing that since 2021, that I think that part of what collapsed all of this was that the Ponzi scheme wasn't getting fed, like the new money wasn't coming in to stay on top of it all, and that the courts being closed due to COVID is a lot of what brought this to a head. I've been saying it for years. I feel so seen. Legal standards. 
Criminal defendants must be mentally competent to be tried. Due process um, of the Fifth Amendment demands that a mentally incompetent person not be tried in a criminal case, and then it cites case law. And here is the standard cited from that case law, Cooper. Competence to stand trial is rudimentary, for upon it depends the main part of those rights deemed essential to a fair trial, including the right to effective assistance of counsel, the right to summon, to confront, and to cross-examine witnesses, the right to testify on one's own behalf, or to remain silent without penalty for doing so. The right to date back to at least the American colonial period. Can we not go back to the Magna Carta, please? Can we not? Can we, can we not do a full history? Federal courts and their history lessons. No, that's not true because we've been doing it in Idaho too. Lawyers, lawyers love their law from from as far back as we can find. This right dates back to at least the American colonial period, where it finds its roots in English common law. Mental incompetency is now statutorily defined. An accused may not be tried if he is, quote, presently suffering from a mental disease or defect, rendering him mentally incompetent to the extent that he is unable to understand the nature of the consequences of the proceedings against him or to assist properly in his defense. Can you understand what's happening? Can you assist your attorney? Because if you can't assist your attorney, you lose those rights that we just talked about the right to effective assistance of counsel because you can't tell them where to look for evidence of an alibi or what have you, the right to confront and cross-examine witnesses. If you can't perceive what's going on, you can't have your witnesses cross-examined because you're not there whispering to your lawyer. I know that's not true because of X, Y, Z. So then it goes through more case law that solidifies this. This is well-settled law. There's not any There's not any question of of. of what this law is or isn't. The court then goes through listing the procedure. We know that the court did a full evidentiary examination and the court lists out the burden of proof and evidence briefly here saying, the finding that a defendant is competent to stand trial is a question of fact. The government bears the burden of proving this fact by a preponderance of the evidence. Like this is a, a scotch Preponderance is a low standard of evidence compared to what we see for holding people certainly criminally responsible, but even civilly liable. This is a low standard and a low bar because the bar is, can you perceive what's happening and help your attorneys? The court should consider representations of defense counsel regarding his client's competence, but is nevertheless free to weigh all the evidence and accord greater credibility to certain evidence, including expert reports and testimony. Evidence regarding defendant's competency, footnote five. Many facts are set forth in the party's expert's report, which the court relies on extensively herein. The 2017 motor vehicle accident. Is this the one where it was snowing in Pasadena? I don't think this is the one where it was snowing in Pasadena. No, that's when Erica's son came to help because somebody broke into the house and then somebody needed surgery on their eye. That, that was the snowing in Pasadena one. This is a different one. But we never heard about this accident until all of this unfurled. And then it was suddenly being discussed on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills a few seasons ago. It says on July 30th, 2017, defendant was involved in a motor vehicle accident. Specifically, he was brought to the emergency room by ambulance in the early morning hours after a late night crash. As a result of the 2017 MVA, defendant suffered orthopedic injuries and blunt force head trauma. The MRI at the time reflected no infarct or any other acute findings. That's in quotes. 
but noted, quote, moderate brain parasemial volume loss. Doctors in the audience, I apologize. I can't read your handwriting and I can't pronounce medical words. It's just, it's not back Back in the day during EMT training, I was much better at this. I am well out of practice. Moderate brain volume loss, not following a particular pattern. According to the contemporaneous medical records of the doctor at the time, defendant's longtime primary care physician, defendant suffered a concussion. Within days of the accident, the doctor noted a resolution of memory impairment other than amnesia for the accident itself. Not uncommon with um, any kind of head trauma to not remember the exact incident. But the doctor, his long-term doctor, noted a a resolution of memory impairment back in 2017. 2019 fall. In February 2019, defendant fell and struck his head requiring stitches. The medical records from the doctor's physical exam indicate that neurologically defendant had imbalance and fine motor tremors. His exam also reflected that defendant's memory was quote-unquote normal, that he was not forgetful, and that he had no memory loss. He also had quite normal insight, normal judgment, normal attention span, and concentration. The doctor recommended further consultation with the neurologist, but this did not occur until 2021 in connection with legal proceedings. Why is that pointed out? Well, in 2019, defendant might have fallen because he was imbalanced. He might have fallen due to uh, progressing age, but it wasn't of such a concern that they followed up on it in any way at all because he didn't follow up on it until 2021 in connection with legal proceedings, which changes the consideration of whether he was really worried or whether he was worried about consequences. 2020 communications from defendant to clients, co-counsel, and employees. While the court does not have before it all the legal work defendant performed during 2020, it did receive the following exhibits reflecting some of his work and communications. Oh, the Lion Air case. If you would like an entire playlist of all of this stuff, it it exists on YouTube. Um, because and and a lot of it here on the podcast as well, because this has been covered here since 2020. On May 14th, 2020, defendant wrote a letter to his client regarding Lion Air distribution of settlement, stating that Boeing had given special authorization to distribute 50% and offering reassurance that he was fairly confident the balance would be done within 30 days. Emily, side note, Emily, side note, that's all a lie. By May, the money had been distributed by uh, by Boeing about the Lion Air crash, had been distributed in March 100%. And Boeing doesn't give special authorization to distribute 50%. All of that is bullshit. Okay, continuing on. So in May 2020, he's lying to his clients to stall them. June 19th, 2020, defendant authored a similar letter to another Lion Air client saying, quote, there were serious issues that he had, quote, been back east four times to get everything resolved. What are you going back east for? Isn't Boeing located in Seattle? Not east. Also, do you call Chicago back east from California? No, because that's where the case was out of, Illinois. Illinois is not back east. Keep going, Emily, not the point, not the point. Um, He'd been back east four times to get everything resolved and that he thought he needed an additional two weeks and would at minimum insist that interest be paid within two weeks. That's June. The money was distributed in March. The money should have gone to him. Also, he wasn't traveling. 
her shit. On July 31st, 2020, defendant authored a letter to another client, one in bankruptcy proceedings, stating, quote, we are trying desperately to get everything figured out. Another another side note, he is writing this letter in July 2020 to a client who is in bankruptcy proceedings, telling them that they are desperately trying to get everything figured out. But the money is gone. The money was distributed in March, and it's gone. And this client is in bankruptcy, and he's saying, I'm trying to figure it out. He's not trying to figure it out. The money is gone. This is referencing working with a bankruptcy trustee to determine how much should go to the estate and how much should be distributed to her. On February 12, 2020, the bankruptcy court had entered an order specifying the amounts that were to be distributed among the various parties, including the recipient of the letter. On September 28, 2020, defendants sent a memorandum to all the attorneys who worked for Girardi Keys, telling them that work from home strategy of the COVID-19 pandemic was not working. In it, he told attorneys that Girardi Keese's income had been reduced by 90%. Sir, the courts are closed. No one's going to trial. You can't force anyone to settle. It's, it has nothing to do with working from home and everything to do with the courts closing and you being completely enveloped in debt. He wanted the attorneys to come back to work in the office. Defendant advised the attorneys that the office space would have only 40% occupancy and that the mayor of Los Angeles had already issued a document which permitted law firms to be open, that everyone would be required to wear masks when walking around the office, and they must practice social distancing, have their body temperature checked twice daily, stay home and seek testing if they showed symptoms, and avoid large in-person conferences. On October 30th, 2020, defendant followed up with a memorandum to all attorneys again trying to convince them to come back to the office rather than continuing to work from home. All of those were just like, no. All of the attorneys are just like, no, we're not coming back. We can work from home. Therein, he included a timesheet for attorneys to report the cases they were working on, describe their work product, and indicate the time they spent doing so. In the memo itself, defendant gave specific information regarding the reduction in cash flow to the firm from $45 million to $55 million in 2019 to an estimated $3.5 million in 2020. On December 4th, 2020, defendant left a voicemail for Jay Edelson of Edelson PC. I've played that voicemail and other content in which he noted that he had seen the allegations made in the Edelson versus Girardi case, which he criticized as terrible. He stated that he thought he had gotten clearance to send money out today and then asked Edelson to call him, giving him his phone number. On December 27th, 2020, defendant left a second voicemail for Jay Edelson stating that he believed there had been a quote unquote miscommunication and that he thought everyone would get paid at the same time. Defendant said that the money was held in trust. He also said he'd been sick with cancer of the eye and asked Edelson not to, quote, be bad to me, assured Edelson that he was, quote, a nice guy, and suggested that they, quote, work everything out in a nice way. He acknowledged that perhaps there was negligence in this matter, and that if so, as the head of the firm, it would be his fault. He again asked Edelson to call him, leaving his phone number. During the first half of 2021, defendant continued to contact former Girardi Keese lawyers to attempt to start a new practice. That's some new information. I remember those voicemails because Edelson included them in one of the filings. I believe it was the initial complaint for sanctions in Illinois or the complaint for contempt in Illinois. And they were um, they were linked. And it's like, I'm a nice guy. Be nice to me. It was that kind of a vibe. But 
It's wild to me that in the first half of 2021, Girardi's wife has filed for divorce. He's been first forced into bankruptcy of the law firm, forced into personal bankruptcy. He was on the phone at the end of December 2020 telling the court, essentially, I don't know where the money's gone. And the lawyer's saying, we don't know where the money's gone. And then in the first half of 2021, he's still trying to get lawyers to start a new practice. Okay, sir. Videotaped presentations from late September through November 2020. Defendant was videotaped speaking on at least four occasions in October and November 2020. Remember, November 2020 is when Erica filed for divorce. She filed for divorce on election day of 2020, thinking that maybe the news cycle would be wild enough with the 2020 election that nobody would notice the divorce. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. It was very noticed. Specifically, two videotape sessions of a judgment debtor examination of defendant dated September 23rd, 2020 and October 13th, 2020 show defendant testifying. On October 6th, 2020, defendant appeared as a guest on a one-hour podcast to discuss trial strategy. On November 21st, 2020, on behalf of the Consumer Attorneys of California, defendant moderated a 90-minute continuing legal education panel discussion about plaintiff trial strategy. December 2020 events related to the Inri Lion Air Flight JT610 crash case. I've covered this case extensively. I'm going to go through this quickly, but... um. I've covered this extensively. It was bananas. Throughout 2020, defendant and other lawyers, including lawyers from Girardi Keese, represented the families of deceased crash victims from the Lion Air flight crash in Illinois. The underlying case consolidates over 50 individual actions against Boeing. These cases arise out of the crash of a Boeing 737 MAX 8 on October 29th, 2018, resulting in over 75 deaths. On December 2nd, 2020, defendant and Girardi Keese were sued by their Lion Air co-counsel Edelson PC. I interviewed Jay Edelson for the podcast, so we've got that. If you want to hear more about this, CEG other content. Edelson alleged that defendant and Girardi Keese, among others, wrongfully transferred, misappropriated, and retained settlement funds owed to the victims of the Lion Air flight. Edelson also alleged that defendant, among others, failed to pay Edelson attorney's fees owed to it under a fee-sharing agreement Edelson asserted claims of breach of contract, tortious interference with contract conversion, seeking an accounting, and imposition of a constructive trust to try to get the money. On the same day the lawsuit was filed, Edelson also moved the Lion Air Court for an order of contempt based on its understanding that Boeing had fully funded the settlements many months before, yeah, in March, but that the funds had not been distributed to the clients and instead been misappropriated and diverted elsewhere by Girardi Keese. On Monday, December 14th, the district court held a hearing on the matter, which defendant attended by telephone along with his own separate counsel, footnote six. During the hearing, counsel for Girardi Keese gave the following answer to the judge's question about what happened that went off the rails for the four cases that Boeing had funded by wiring settlement funds to Girardi Keese. Quote, it's very, very difficult to say, judge, Mr. Girardi is 81 years of age and has had issues regarding his mental competence. So the judge is like, on the phone, counsel, what the fuck? I'm summarizing. And the attorney's like, I, he's old, your honor. I can't, uh, I can't really say, but he's old. This representation by Girardi Keese's counsel preceded any medical evidence the defendant had experienced, quote, any memory issues. What do you think the judge is insinuating there, folks? 
The judge is insinuating that Girardi has been using this as a shield even before any medical examinations took place. Was this a plan all along? It seems so. And the judge laid it right the fuck out. His own counsel echoed the statement by counsel for Girardi Keese, stating that defendant was not able, quote, to understand the natures of the proceedings or provide her counsel with useful information. So the attorneys are using competency language to say, we don't really know, Your Honor, he's old. The same day, the Lion Air Court held defendant in contempt, froze defendant and the law firm's assets, and entered a judgment against them in the amount of $2 million. The court's like, money's gone, fuck this shit, assets frozen. And all of this played out on Real Housewives of Beverly Hills as literally the women are holding up their phones going, oh my God, can you believe that this just happened? Like, the whole time. Assets frozen. The next day, Los Angeles Superior Court Judge Holly Fuji issued a separate order to show cause why defendants should not be reported to the California State Bar for misconduct and violation of the rules of professional conduct and withholding settlement funds. That is in the Rigomez matter. Announcer voice. The defendant has since been disbarred. I covered those actions as well. This representation by Girardi Key's counsel preceded any medical evidence that defendant had experienced any memory issues. Footnote 8. On the final day of defendant's competency hearing before this court, September 13th, 2023, on cross-examination, defense expert Dr. Wood answered true to the prosecutor's inquiry that, quote, there is not a single medical record before December of 2020 other than the short three days after the 2017 MVA noting any memory issue of this defendant. So defense expert absolutely indicates and testifies that the defendant did not have issues with his memory before legal proceedings began. It's the judge pointed it out so well. I mean, I really am enjoying how the judge has written this. Footnote 10, the same day the Lion Air Court held defendant in contempt. Footnote 10, the day after defendant was indicted in the present case on wire fraud charges on February 1st, 2023, defendant was also indicted in the Northern District of Illinois, where he faces seven counts of wire fraud, five counts of criminal contempt, and forfeiture exceeding $3 million arising out of the Lion Air case. Uh, his son-in-law also indicted in that case. Four days later, on Friday, December 18th, 2020, defendants and Girardi Keese's creditors forced both into involuntary bankruptcy proceedings. Footnote 11, on February 4th, 2021, Edelson filed a suggestion of bankruptcy to alert the court that defendant Thomas Girardi and law firm Girardi Keese were in bankruptcy proceedings as of December 18th, 2020, effectively halting the litigation pending bankruptcy, adjudication, or relief from the automatic stay. Have you been procrastinating? Maybe starting your e-commerce situation. Look, I totally get it. I put it off to when the law nerds were asking for a merch shop, I was like, where do I even start? And I immediately went to a friend who I trusted and they said, Shopify. Whether you're selling online or in person, Shopify has solutions for you. And 
Shopify not only makes it easy for you to build your shop, but it makes it easier for your customers to check out with the things that they want because they have the internet's best converting checkout. On average, it's 36% better than other leading commerce platforms. It powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., including mine, but also all birds and Rothy's and Brooklyn and and millions of others across 175 countries. And Shopify has award-winning support to help you every step of the way. So if you ever get overwhelmed or just have a question, you can reach out to Shopify and they're there to help. So if you want to try it for yourself and if you're you have an idea for your shop and you're ready to go, sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com/lawnard. All lowercase. Go to shopify.com/lawnard now to grow your business no matter what stage of business you're at because businesses grow with Shopify. And get ready to hear this sound. You know, it's way better than stealing money from your clients. Let's get back to talking about Tom Girardi. Petition to appoint a conservator filed in January 2021. Defendant has his assets frozen in Illinois by the judge in Illinois because of the Edelson PC filing on December 14th. On January 19th, 2021, he goes into a conservatorship. It's like barely a month, just over a month. And then all of a sudden he needs a conservatorship. It's like this, in that month, I can't, you can go back and look at the content for how crazy it was, but it was like every single day stuff was unraveling about this case from November when Erica filed for divorce to these hearings in December and the Edelson PC filing, and then the forced bankruptcy and the frozen assets and the rest of it, it, it just imploded into like a black hole. And I'm like, this is the tip of the iceberg. And it is all happening very, very quickly. It's wild. But then, then come, then come with the conservatorship. And a lot of people at the time said, is this strategic or does he need it? And I mentioned at the time, and we'll mention again, it is not hard to put someone in a conservatorship. We've seen this in the Britney Spears case. It is not difficult. So if he wanted to go into conservatorship to make this claim of mental deficiency more authentic, then here you go. In connection with the conservatorship proceeding, defendant was examined by various doctors in January through March 2021. Specifically, Dr. Frischette, a neuropsychiatrist, diagnosed defendant with a cognitive impairment of mild or moderate severity, perhaps as a result of Alzheimer's disease, footnote 12, which says eventually a diagnosis of Alzheimer's was excluded based on defendant's negative amyloid PET scan. Just a, a, just a note of reminder, the doctors who evaluate Tom Girardi for a conservatorship and for the court do so with an interview. They don't do scans. They don't do um, other types of diagnostic testing. It is interview-based. It's like literally checkbox-based which is why it says, perhaps it's Alzheimer's. And because of his age in his 80s, people aren't questioning it a ton. I mean, the internet questioned it a ton, but the court's not questioning it a ton. They're like, oh, he's not objecting to the conservatorship? Okay. Uh, Dr. Lavid, a neuropsychiatrist, performed a three-hour neuropsychiatric evaluation after which he concluded defendant had almost no short-term memory stating in his declaration for the conservatorship proceeding that defendant's dementia impairs his ability to understand the hearing. PhD 
Dr. Budding conducted a neuropsychological evaluation that included testing. Dr. Budding believed that defendant's invalid and consistent result on one test may have been the result of a combination of his vision troubles and the proximity of the score sheet bubbles on this particular portion of the testing. Ultimately, Dr. Budding opined that defendant was not capable of assisting his attorney due to clearly impaired abilities to encode slash absorb information and difficulty recalling information provided to him. The petition to appoint a conservator was granted on July 9th, 2021. Break in at defendant's Pasadena residence. Oh boy. This is also the subject of much internet discussion. Defendant was recorded by police officer body cameras after a break-in in his home on January 23rd, 2021, and in a follow-up interview about five days later. In these videos, defendant shows some trouble in recalling some names and details, but he is able to walk through the home with the officers, recount what he had seen, and convey details regarding the residence itself. With effort, he was able to provide contact information of family members, attorneys, and his assistant by consulting a paper list, footnote 13. Defendant uses a flip phone, not a smartphone. Oh, Your Honor, we know. Because uh, when Erica put his affair on blast, the cell phone photos that Girardi had taken were from a old school flip phone. July 31st, 2021 fall. On or about July 31st, 2021, defendant again fell. Footnote 14. Three days before on July 28th, defendant had a minor surgical procedure. The hospital report noted the defendant gave a history indicating that his mother was alive when, in fact, she had died many years before. He also believed that someone from his then-defunct law firm brought him to the hospital when, in fact, he had been brought in by ambulance. A CT scan of his brain on July 31st, 2021 showed no acute intracranial findings and also showed a generalized brain volume loss that had been reported in earlier scans. An MRI of defendant's brain followed on the same day, and the report notes no acute infarct, notes volume loss, and mild changes, chronic small vessel ischemic disease. On August 1st, 2021, defendant is reported as having poor short-term memory, noted as not remembering the reason for his hospitalization and of forgetting that he was not ready to be discharged after being told this repeatedly. This continued for at least the next two days. Defendant was unhappy with his treatment team's recommendation that he be moved to an assisted living facility. This recommendation was apparently implemented and defendant was moved into assisted living at Belmont Village. What's interesting is that if he's feigning, he's feigning because he's in court stuff. And then when the medical providers are like, well, obviously you still need care. He's like, what are you talking about? I don't want to go to assisted living. It's like... You can't have it both ways. Post hoc accounts of defendant's cognitive decline. There were no contemporaneous anecdotal reports, i.e. text messages, emails, letters, of defendant's alleged cognitive decline from 2017 through the end of 2020. The first of such anecdotal reports were made to defendant's lawyer and or experts related to the conservatorship proceeding in 2021. So they're saying, look, There's nothing. There's nothing during this time. No conversations seem to be being had that anyone's worried about Tom's capability. In a February 25th, 2021 letter to the psychiatrist retained by defendant's family in support of a conservatorship, Richard Kramer, defendant's friend of over two decades who also worked with defendant on many trials, who had been his photographer, recounted that he noted defendant's decline began after the 2017 motor vehicle accident which is what Erica said as well on Real Housewives, 
But Erica said it as all this was unraveling. None of this was said in 2017. In an email of the same date to defendant's counsel, defendant's legal assistant noted the same decline, providing samples from 2019 and 2020, including defendant asking the identity of a woman in a picture with him, his wife, forgetting she had given him particular files, forgetting details about cases, repeatedly dictating the same letter to the same person, failing to recognize employees, and calling her in for work after the firm had closed. A consultant who had worked for Girardi Keese for a number of years was interviewed by Dr. Goldstein, a government expert in this proceeding, about the consultant's interactions with defendant. The consultant reported that approximately six to nine months after the car accident, defendant didn't have the same attention to detail or the same short-term memory. She'd notice he'd say, hey, babe, to people instead of their names, people he should have known. It's like cheating, quote unquote, but I never saw him not recognize someone. I do that so much. <laughs> Is that terrible? God, I'm too ADHD. There's times when I completely blank on people's names and I'm like, hey, girl, hey. But oftentimes I say that because that's also just what I say. So I don't think of ever saying, hey, girl, hey, I've forgotten your name, though it is possible. But um, the short-term memory is, is, a, uh, is a fun quirk of neurodivergence. But again, this person said they never saw him not recognize someone. Nevertheless, she didn't think he was any less sharp. The consultant stated that defendant had stolen her friend's money and that she confronted him about it when she last met with defendant in mid-May 2019. She also noted that she observed him at an arraignment in a current matter or at the arraignment in the current matter and believed he recognized her. She reported to Dr. Goldstein that she observed the defendant appeared fragile in front of the cameras, but did not appear to need assistance once he reached the hallway, presumably out of sight of the media. What an interesting observation. Defendant's daughter, Jennifer, was also interviewed by Dr. Goldstein. Jennifer had been estranged from defendant for a number of years, but reconciled with him in early 2021. Oh, after the collapse. When she did see him, she became concerned regarding his ability to live alone. He'd always had people to manage his medication and take care of his home and was unlikely to learn how to do it then. I would just say that a man who's had people taking care of him his entire life is also unlikely to all of a sudden be able to manage his own life and household in his 80s. I'm just, that's not shocking to me, but it also doesn't mean he can't go to trial. He'd always had people to manage his medication and take care of his home and was unlikely to learn how to do it then. He wasn't driving anymore. He made notes about his practice, but Jennifer believed a lot of defendant's notes were gibberish. Defendant could not recall details regarding family members, including thinking his grandson was his nephew. Jennifer occasionally had to remind him to shower, get dressed fully, or change his clothes. Imagine there might also be an amount of depression that would go with this stunning and swift collapse. In February 2021, defendant's longtime lawyer friend, does it need to be indicated that they're lawyer friends? Like, can't they just be friends' friends? Um, Richard Marmoreau sent a text message to defendant's brother, which was then forwarded to defendant's attorney, providing an example of defendant's earlier loss of orientation as to place in March 2020. We were all disoriented as to place in March of 2020. Specifically, Maramo explains that in March 2020, he ran into defendant in the lobby of the federal court and quickly ascertained that defendant was looking for a particular department of the superior court and was in the wrong building. Maramo became concerned for his run because he knew defendant had appeared hundreds, if not thousands of times in superior court over the previous three decades. They are very, they, to be fair, they are very different court buildings 
in Los Angeles. Like the federal court and the civil superior court and the criminal court, do none of them look anything alike. And they are not in the same, they're close to each other, but they're not in the same place. A defense expert interviewed defendant's longtime housekeeper who in early 2021 transitioned from being defendant's housekeeper to caregiver. She helped care for him for about seven months before he moved to Belmont Village. Defendant's housekeeper reported she first noticed a change after the 2017 motor vehicle accident, giving examples that he could not make a sandwich. He would wear the same socks three or four days in a row. Okay. He would bring home dirty, empty styrofoam cups from the office. The first medical notation suggesting cognitive decline was around the time the conservatorship proceeding was initiated. In late February 2021, after speaking with a defense expert involved in the conservatorship proceeding, Dr. Parrick, who had made contemporaneous notes in 2019 stating defendant's memory was normal, made an entry in his notes retrospectively noting a cognitive decline. Interesting. Ever since his motor vehicle accident where he went off a cliff in 2017, fracturing his ankle and having head trauma, he has not been the same. There has been a marked change in his cognition, often repeating stories, talking about the past and focusing on past accomplishments. Over the last two years, socially, his gait became slightly impaired, more shoveling. It's a spelling shuffling. And he seemed to get occasionally confused when out in public. The doctor saw defendant the same day he made the note, and he added for the first time in his office notes that defendant had impaired memory or poor insight and judgment. So in February 2020, Girardi went to his doctor, and then his doctor started saying, oh, actually, in hindsight, in hindsight, maybe, maybe there was an issue. Don't medical professionals note those things contemporaneously? An attorney who were like, which is it? At this point, sorry for the tangent, but was everyone covering for defendant because he was bringing in the money? So after 2017, everybody's like, well, we don't want to say anything because the practice is still going well and it's making $50 million a year or whatever. So we're just going to ignore any signs of cognitive decline to cover all of this up. Who cares what happens to his clients? I mean, as long as we're getting paid, is that what's happening? Or... Was there no cognitive decline? Maybe there were some, some repercussions from a head injury after the motor vehicle accident, but was there long-term impairment or wasn't there? Because it seems like the medical professionals aren't listing or noting long-term impairment. Continuing on, an attorney who worked with defendant from July 1st, 2019 to December 6, 2020, was interviewed by Dr. Goldstein. During this time, she frequently consulted with defendant regarding her cases. Although she had to help him recall the specific facts, he recalled the cases when given details. I mean, this is common with literally every supervisor I've ever worked with. When they're dealing with multiple attorneys and sometimes hundreds of cases, it's like, which one again? It's like, oh, the person who got the hot Starbucks water thrown on them and Marina Del Rey, that, yeah, that one. You, And then they're like, oh yeah, I know what we're talking about. That's that's incredibly common. And he always assisted her with mediation or settlement conferences. She viewed him as a very capable mentor. She often lunched with him, particularly during the early part of the COVID-19 pandemic, when they were the only lawyers in the office. She did not experience him becoming confused, having trouble tracking conversations, rambling, losing his train of thought, repeating himself, or responding off point to questions. He remembered details of her personal life, such as where she lived and that she was looking into purchasing a home. She reported that during the time she worked with him, she did not ever feel he was incapable of overseeing the firm or of providing case supervisions. 
He sometimes made inappropriate comments to her, but she stated that was in keeping with his personality, not a deviation from it. Okay. Other than that, she saw no odd behavior, changes in hygiene, changes in normal routine, or socializing habits. Over this time, she observed some physical problems, walking slowly, hearing problems, eye problems, decreased appetite, and weight loss. Again, age-appropriate responses, not necessarily indicative of anything more. The next heading is criminal indictments. The day after defendant was indicted on the present case on wire fraud charges, defendant was indicted in Illinois, where he faces seven counts of wire fraud, five counts of criminal contempt, and forfeiture proceedings. Reports from retained experts. In 2023, after defendant was charged in the present case and in connection with the present motion, additional reports were consulted regarding defendant's cognition. Much of the contents of the reports are discussed below. The court goes on to summarize a lot of the doctor's reports, which I have skipped. The court's going to get to them in argument, um, but I'm going to get to some of the other briefer accounts that I find very interesting. Caregiver accounts from 2023. Defendant's caregivers report changes in defendant's behavior in April of 2023. A supervisor from the assisted living facility where defendant resides was interviewed by Dr. Goldstein. She reports changes in defendant's behavior beginning approximately April 2023 before he had been independent in bathing, dressing, grooming, but the supervisor had received reports that he had started wearing the same clothes, sometimes using towels in place of toilet paper, asking for his driver to come pick him up, but forgetting about his request after staff redirected his attention, and repeatedly asking to see a barber for a haircut after being told the barber would be in the next day. She had not noticed any word-finding problems and said the defendant doesn't get lost or confused and always comes out when it's time for meals, According to the supervisor in approximately mid-2023, after defendants, quote, this is a quote from the caregiver, lawyers started coming in to talk to him. Defendant began saying, quote, I'm not a resident here. I'm here for business and saying, quote, I'm fighting for you as if the supervisors were his client. The supervisor reported that, quote, he's always working at a desk or a table by himself outside or in the dining room and that he says he's working on cases He's on his cell phone a lot, but I don't know who he's talking to, end quote. Defendant's demeanor at the competency hearing. I'm also very interested about the judge's perception of the defendant at the hearings, because that is one of the big things the judge will be paying attention to. With one exception discussed below, (laughs) we know what that is. With one exception discussed below, defendant sat quietly at defense table during the course of the three-day hearing. Occasionally, defendants seemed engaged in the proceedings, but often he appeared to give them little attention. One notable event occurred when the prosecutor asked Dr. Wood whether she would consider a particular fact relevant to an examinee's competency. Specifically, the prosecutor asked Dr. Wood if she would find significant that an examinee, quote, was able to successfully keep secret the fact of a multi-million dollar fraud. At this moment, before Dr. Wood answered, the prosecutor asked the court to note that the defendant had said to him in a lowered voice, fuck you. And he also noted that defense counsel seated next to defendant at counsel table did not contradict the prosecutor's account. So the prosecutor's asking the expert, would you consider somebody keeping this massive fraud a secret as a sign of their competency and ability? And Girardi piped up at council table, fuck you. So, you know, this 
When I saw reports coming out on this the day of, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. This this is not going to go well for Tom Girardi because it it's an appropriate response to the question the prosecutor's asking. It's not a random response. It's not a blurt out that has nothing to do and is completely disconnected from what's happening. It is an angered response to talking about his multi-million dollar fraud. So that happened. Dr. Wood agreed the defendant's statement was significant because it showed an appreciation of what the prosecutor was saying and what he is being accused of. Agreed. The court says defendant is competent to stand trial. Weighing all the evidence before the court and considering the many arguments offered by counsel, the court concludes that although defendant suffers from a mild to moderate cognitive impairment, he is competent to stand trial under the relevant legal standard. In short, having reviewed the evidence relating to defendant's brain scans, his testing results, the antidotal recounts of his abilities, his presentation at clinical interviews, and importantly, the timeline of the progression of the asserted cognitive decline, the court finds persuasive the government's experts' conclusions that defendant is exaggerating his symptoms and partially malingering. The court finds persuasive the conclusion that the defendant is exaggerating and partially malingering. So when the court rules against defendant, the court's not just saying, no, his mental impairment, yes, he has mental impairment, but it does not make him unable to stand trial. The court has gone further than that and said that the court believes the government's experts that defendant is faking. Defendant is exaggerating his symptoms. Defendant is trying to raise cognitive impairment as a defense by faking, which is what malingering is. So fakey faker. As a result, and as explained further below, the court concludes defendant is able to understand the nature and consequences of the proceedings against him and to assist properly his defense counsel. Yet, if he's faking and exaggerating to try to get out of it, it shows that he he appreciates the nature and consequences of what he's facing and that there's nothing he can do to get out of this. The court in Illinois already concluded that he stole from the Lion Air clients in the civil case. What are you going to do in the criminal case, Tom? What's your defense there? His defense is, I can't stand trial. That's not going to fly. And the prosecute, the feds are not the ones you want to fuck around with this stuff with either because the feds have the time, money, and energy to get the experts to do the evaluation. The feds aren't going to go, oh yeah, we agree he's not competent. Send him out to competency court, have him evaluated. The feds have time. The feds have time to do all of this. And that's exactly what they did. The court goes on to continue to back up their ruling. And we're going to peek in on some of those things real quick. Written and recorded evidence that is contemporaneous with defendant's first claim of incompetency shows no significant cognitive impairment. Like the court's not mincing words here. The experts opining on the subject agree that neurodegenerative disease relevant to defendant are slowly progressive. Thus, defendants reported dramatic decline from November 2020 to mid-December through January 2021 deviates from the normal trajectory of any likely neurodegenerative diseases from which defendant may suffer. Sir, you do not have a rapid decline 
from November 2020 to January 2021. That's not how this works. You know what rapidly declined from November 2020 to January 2021? His wealth, his wife, his law firm, and all the rest of it. Everything exploded, imploded, black hole. All of it happened during that period of time. From election day on 2020 when Erica filed for divorce to Edelson PC filing that contempt proceeding and lawsuit um, in the court in Illinois not very long after that to being forced into bankruptcy by the end of December to saying that he needed to go into a conservatorship in mid-January. The rapid decline was his fraud, not his mental state. Though that mental decline he might have had, he might have had an upset to his mental state because of the rapid decline and unraveling of his law firm and the fraud and the rest of it, but it's not neurodegenerative disease. It goes on to say, thus, given the slow progression of neurodegenerative diseases and given that defendant's very first claim of cognitive impairment occurred in a legal proceeding on December 14th, 2020, writings and recordings in the months and weeks before this claim become relevant. Several such written and recorded communications show defendant communicating well, seemingly without any or with very mild cognitive impairment. You know what the court just said? You know what the court just said? Receipts, timeline, evidence. That's exactly what the fuck the court just said. Receipts, timeline, evidence. And all of that adds up in the court's mind to malingering. Defendant's performance in the podcast on October 6, 2020 is inconsistent with a claim that he suffers from a mental impairment making him incompetent to stand trial. Defendant engages in a conversation with the host on the topic of jury selection and the importance of jurors. Overall, his performance is cogent and intelligent. Defendant's performance in moderating a four-lawyer panel in late November 2020 is similar. Defendant listened to all the presentations, made observations about similarities between them, e.g. the use of visual aids and the massive preparation of the trial attorneys, Dr. Goldstein made similar observations regarding judgment dinner examinations taking place on September 23rd, 2020 and October 13th, 2020. These recordings are strong evidence that defendants suffered from, at most, a mildly limiting cognitive impairment as of September through November 2020. Indeed, from the court's non-expert perspective, these videos show no more than a normal age-related decline. Defendant left voicemails for his Lion Air co-counsel in December 2020 that demonstrate he understood that allegations of fraud had been made against him and the law firm. The first voicemail was left less than two weeks before the hearing in which his competency was first questioned. The second, more detailed message was left less than two weeks after the hearing. These voicemails show, contrary to the claims of Girardi Keese's counsel and his own counsel, the defendant understood the nature of the civil lawsuit filed by Edelson PC and understood the nature of the civil contempt hearing in the Lion Air case. The court goes on to say that the legal standard for competency to stand trial is met and talks about the fact that the defendant is able to understand the nature and consequences of the proceedings against him. Quote, defendant clearly understands the nature of the charges against him. His characterization of the charge of wire fraud as quote unquote theft certainly captures its essence in all cases, Based on the charges in this particular case, the characterization is particularly appropriate, right, because it's theft. Defendant disclaims knowledge of the existence of the charges and or the ability to remember he has been charged, but he claims knowledge that he did not engage in any wrongdoing. 
including the knowledge that he did not steal any settlement funds intended for clients. In doing so, he allows for the possibility that certain funds were not properly distributed by the law firm due to negligence. And on this point, he does not shy away from responsibility for any such negligence. He's like, I mean, things might have happened, but it's not criminal. Like, I'm not a criminal. I didn't steal anything, sir. As discussed at length herein, defendant's purported denial of knowledge of the charges made against him and or the purported failure to remember such charges once reminded of them is wholly lacking in credibility. Defendant's overall understanding of the current proceedings, including their nature and consequences, was demonstrated when the charges against him were framed in the hypothetical by Drs. Wood and Goldstein, indeed most likely drawing on decades of experience as a civil trial attorney, defendant demonstrated an extensive understanding that far exceeds that of an average criminal defendant. He showed a knowledge of the substance of the charges, the factual allegations underlying those charges, and how those charges might relate to the operations of Girardi Keese, how to defend against those charges, how a trial proceeds, and the role of others involved in the trial, and the likely consequences if found guilty. So faking faker, and possibly lying liar. The court's just like, this this feigned, purported, I don't know what I'm being charged with, is wholly lacking in credibility. Strong words from this federal judge. And then we're getting to the conclusion. For the reasons set forth herein, the court finds defendant is competent to stand trial and denies defendant's motion for a finding of incompetency. The court issues the present order provisionally under seal within five days of the entry of this order. The parties are to identify those portion of the court's order that they believe should remain sealed. In doing so, the parties should consider the court's previous orders on the topic and the fact that the transcripts in this matter are already part of the public docket. Um, Nothing appeared to be sealed out of this. Nothing was redacted out of this. The court had very strong words for Tom Girardi in the way that a federal judge does. Wholly lacking in credibility is a pretty strong rebuke. Also, the court did not shy away from saying that they agreed with the prosecutor's um, experts finding that Tom Girardi is exaggerating and malingering. So, Tom, are you going to go to trial? We'll see. But um, if he does go to trial, I wonder if we'll see some of his appearances come back to bite him. No, we probably won't because this is all about stealing from clients. But wouldn't it be interesting to see Real Housewives pop up in another federal trial? Well, we we thought that might happen in the Jen Shaw case, but then she pled. Will this defendant plead? I don't know. Will the CFO plead? I don't know. But they wouldn't be in a position to even discuss settlement until this was done. Now that he's been found competent to stand trial, he's in his mid-80s. So anything they plead to is going to be, you know, a 10-year plea in this case is going to be, I mean, more time than he will likely serve given his age. So would he want to plea to this? I don't know. Would he want to stand trial and see those testify against him, including his former clients? I don't know. But if he does, it's going to go down in federal court in LA, and I'm looking to I'm looking forward to see the next scheduling orders to see when this is going to start moving forward towards trial. So with all of that, let me know if you want to stay on the loop on all things Girardi. The bankruptcy has been 
kind of moving along. But this was the biggest thing that came out because the question has been lingering for so long. Is Tom Girardi faking? And the federal court has said, to some extent, yes. Does he have some mild impairment? Yes. Does he have the impairment he says he has? No. And isn't it interesting that when the legal proceedings started, everybody's like, oh, there was this accident in 2017. We need to talk about it now. Isn't it suspicious? That's weird. That's suspicious. And that's exactly what the federal judge said, too. So the new year is coming in busy. If you guys want to know what I'm covering, and there is a ton of it, lawnerdapp.com will keep you all the way in the loop. So with that, thank you for being here. Thank you for being a Lawnerd. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your families be well. And may the odds be ever in your favor. I will see you in the next one, or hopefully on a live stream soon, because we've got a lot to talk about this week. As the law nerds have pointed out, it feels like 2023 might have been the year of fuck around, and 2024 might be the year of find out. So uh, is Tom Girardi going to find out? Maybe so. Maybe so. It's going to be a real interesting year, and I'm glad to have you along for the ride. I'll see you in the next one. You can stay up to date with everything I'm covering on our free iOS and Android app at lawnerdapp.com or search your app store for Lawnerd. And you can also follow me on social media at the Emily D. Baker. Remember, I stream on YouTube on Tuesdays and Thursdays. I recap all of that for you in quick bits on Monday. And of course, The Emily Show drops on Wednesdays. Thanks for being a Lawnerd.